Last week, we were reminded of something that the Lord himself prayed in John chapter 17, the third verse. And it is a reminder of um, what the Lord's... You, you know, when you're, when you're facing death, the things that you talk about are really the things that matter. They're the things that you want to have said before you enter into eternity. Christ is right at the threshold of being betrayed. And within a matter of a day, he is going to be crucified. So as he is praying in the garden, this, this prayer that is reflective of his heart's desire for what he wants the Father to know from his human point of view. He's expressing his desire for his disciples. And then he's expressing his desire for us. And he says this in John 17, 3. He says, For this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and the Savior whom you have sent. When we think about having eternal life, we often relegate that concept to the first segment of our experience with the Lord himself. And that is the expression of our trust in Christ as our Savior. And when we do, by faith, accept the sacrifice of Christ, and we recognize that he died not for us, he died for me. He took my sin upon himself. And he was buried and he rose again from the dead. We are introduced to the realm of eternal life that is not merely being in heaven for all eternity. It is an experience that begins immediately upon acceptance of Christ as Savior. And if you know Christ, you are living in the realm of eternal life right now. One of Paul's greatest desires is that you and I would know God. And he's not speaking merely of knowing Christ as our Savior, but he's speaking of our knowing the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in an experiential way that we might know intimately, we might understand, we might begin to grasp who our God really is. And so with that understanding... Paul proceeds in this 11th chapter of Romans to take us on a journey that is designed to help us get to know our God better. That, that's really the, the expression of the entirety of Scripture, to be honest with you. It is so that we might know Him better. But as we approach this chapter, there are some twists and some turns that are a little bit unique because they take us into a realm of understanding God through the way that he works and the way that he worked through the people of Israel. Last week we began looking at this in the first six verses and we, we drew our attention to the fact that, that God's plan is going to succeed even when it appears that it has failed. God's plan will succeed even for a time it seems to have failed. And the first thing that we begin to understand is that it appears his plan for Israel failed. God had a plan for Israel that from the human point of view looks as if it failed because the people of Israel have been set aside for a time. And yet God has 
confirmed that once again Israel will be the focus of his attention and the time will come during the tribulation period when two-thirds of the Jewish nation perish, the remaining third will trust Christ and thus Paul can tell us all Israel at that point in time will be saved. His plan is going to work. In addition to that, it appears that his plan for the church has failed because as we look around, we see not only the, the decline of interest in being involved in a church body, but sadly, in many churches today, you're going to hear the world's concept, not Christ's. You're not going to have a biblical worldview. You're going to have a, a very carnal worldview that is designed to reach out to social issues facing the people rather than the spiritual issues that tell us how we ought to live before our God. And it looks like the church has failed, and yet the Lord said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In the future, it's going to appear as if God's plan for the unfolding of future events it will appear that that will fail because the Antichrist himself will ascend into a realm of being worshipped by the people who are here during the tribulation period of time and it's going to appear that God's plan has failed until God destroys the army that rises up against him, casts Satan into hell for a thousand years, I'm sorry, not hell, into the abyss for a thousand year period where he will be chained and then at the end of the thousand years he will be loosed and he will again gather an army to fight against the Lord and the Lord with the word of his mouth will destroy them. And though it appears that God's plan failed, it will not fail, it will succeed. God's plan for obedience appears to have failed because people who live lives that are supposedly in obedience will find that their efforts often don't result in the uh, payoff that they're hoping. If I obey God, then he's going to bless me. Well, there is truth to that. But the blessings don't always come the way we hope. The blessings come in light of the way God intends to bless us, which is ultimately better for us than what we ourselves desire. And so it appears sometimes that God's plan just has failed. There are other issues related to the, the, the plan of God that uh, when, when people become disgruntled, when God doesn't deliver and he doesn't come through the way that they're hoping, what they find is that in their thinking, uh, I tried the Lord, he failed, and so I don't really care to be with him anymore. And sadly, that is often the case with people today. And then finally, it appears that God's grace has failed because his grace is available. But as you look around, how many people are still without Christ and have not embraced the grace of God which is given freely for those who will trust Christ and they will receive Christ as their Savior. And so you look around and you say, you know, there's just a few of us. There, there aren't that many of us who really know Christ. Uh, you go back to your neighborhoods and what you're going to find is probably most people have slept in today or they're doing yard work or they're getting ready to watch football or whatever the case might be. And you say, has God's grace failed? And maybe it looks that way, but it has not. And so the Lord says, 
through Paul, I want you to understand something about me. The way things appear is not always the way things really are. I am in control. I am bringing to pass everything that I have promised and everything that I have declared. I want you to know that about me. That we might know you, the only true God. As we approach verse 7, a new theme is introduced here. And this new theme builds upon this reality. God will harden the hearts of those who will not come to him, thus emphasizing the danger of refusing his promptings. Israel had heard of the Lord Time and time again, the prophets had spoken about the coming Messiah. When the Messiah came, his fulfillment of each of the prophecies was, was very obviously clear, even to an unbeliever. When, when, when Herod was confronted with the fact that a king had been born, and he says, where will he be born? And, and his own scribes went back and said, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem because he will be of the, the house and lineage of David. And, and the, the uh, direction for having this uh, census taken takes everyone back to the home of their forefathers. And it has to be the city of Bethlehem, where the Messiah will come from because he will be called the son of David. And Bethlehem was David's home. Does that make sense? That's just one of the tiny little prophecies. And then one after another after another, the prophetic fulfillments begin to fall. And what people begin to see is that this Christ, this Jesus, was truly the one who had been promised. But they didn't believe. They rejected him. And you would look at that and say, well, how can you be so dumb? How can you neglect the obvious truth? And I guess we could probably say some of that same thing even today. How can you neglect such obvious truth? Well, there's a problem when you do. And the problem is this. If you look at verse 7, I want to change, uh, not change, uh, that, that would be inaccurate. I want to give you a more accurate understanding of the last word translated in our English in this verse. Verse 7 of chapter 11 says this. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. What's he speaking of? He's speaking of a right relationship with God who had set them apart as, of, as his people. Israel has not obtained to that relationship that God intended for them except for the elect. The elect have obtained that relationship. And so he says, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were, and in our New King James the word blinded appears. It is more accurately understood as hardened. Now, the two would be, could be used synonymously, so I'm not trying to change any concept here. But the word for hardened is the word that appears there, and here's what's being communicated. When the Lord prompts and you do not respond, 
then there is a divine intervention that causes your heart to become even more hardened. The reason you don't respond is because of a hard heart. And the more you harden your heart, the more the Lord hardens your heart. Let's take a look at some ways in which that can occur. If you ignore the Lord's prompting in the realm of obedience, your heart begins to harden. Some people begin with this. They will begin with a hardness that is purely ignoring what the Lord has to say. People will come to a service, and when they arrive, they'll, they'll probably have a lot of different things on their minds. That, that's often the way it is. They'll, they'll be thinking about uh, maybe some event that's going to be going on throughout the week, maybe some pressures because of work, maybe there's been some conflict within the family. There, there might be a whole variety of things going on, and then they'll come into the auditorium, they'll sit down, they'll hear the Word of God, and they will sit there and, hmm, oh, yes, 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 yes. And the minute the service is over, they walk out, and they don't remember anything that was said. Nothing has moved them. Nothing has changed their lives. Nothing has caused them to give more attention to what the Lord has declared and they go on their merry way, making their decisions without the, the, the input from the Lord himself, without concerning themselves about what he has said. And so what happens is, the more that happens, the easier it is for that to continue to happen. And you come, and you don't listen, and you ignore, and you go on your merry way. When that has taken hold, and the heart begins to harden, there are those who just completely resist what the Lord has revealed, and they will say something like this, I know that that's what the Lord said, but you know, I'm not really sure. Now, you would never put it in this terminology. I'm not really sure he's got it right. You wouldn't say that but you would live it. When God speaks, does he really mean what he says? And some would say, yeah, most of the time. Most of the time. But you know, I really believe that my purpose for being here is to be happy. And if I do something that makes me happy and it's not really in line with what God says, I'm sure he will understand. Have you ever made a decision like that? I'm sure God will understand. And then it becomes easier and easier and easier to just flat out say, you know, as long as God and I agree, I'll do things his way. But when we disagree... I'm going to evaluate and see which is mostly to my advantage. Then it gets harder. And the heart hardens even more. To the point now where the heart 
responds negatively to whatever God has declared. And it says, I don't care what God says. This is what I'm going to do. Over the years, I've had people flat out tell me that. They've sat in my office, and they have said, I don't care what he says. This is what I'm going to do. You guys want to know where it happens the most? Young couples who want to get married. God's word is very clear. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't do it. And by the way, folks, that doesn't just apply to marriage. That has implications for business life. That has implications for commitments that bring you into a partnership with someone else in whatever realm it might be. If they are an unbeliever and you come under the authority of decisions they make, you find yourselves unequally yoked with an unbeliever. But it usually surfaces when a young woman comes who is... Now I'm going to say stuff... Okay. I'm going to say things that are going to sound really bigoted, chauvin, no, not chauvinistic, I'm not a chauvinist, please be quiet, (laughs) I will pay for that later, (laughs) okay, it's usually a young girl who wants to be married and have children, and is not finding a young man who is a good believer who would lead them spiritually, And so they say, I don't care if God says not to marry an unbeliever. I'm going to pray that God brings this unbelieving man who I am going to marry to faith in Christ. Do you know how often that happens? Almost never. I won't say never. It does happen. And it is purely because of the grace of God that it occurs. But I watch... I watch young girls go into marriage to guys that are absolute scumbags. And it's only a matter of time till they're back in my office saying, what am I going to do? I can't live with this guy anymore. Because the drive is so intense. Loneliness is tough. The desire to have what everyone else has can drive you to do things you ought not do. Let me, let me just warn you guys. Don't harden your hearts to what God has said so that you don't live the rest of your life with regret. When you ignore what God has to say, your heart becomes hard. Sometimes people will ignore the prompting of God when it comes to the realm of serving him. Now we're probably going to get a little bit closer to home because most of you would understand the previous part about obedience. You know that the the road of disobedience takes you over a cliff ultimately. But now when it comes to the matter of serving, every born-again believer in Christ has been granted spiritual giftedness that puts you in a place of capability to perform works of ministry for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, 
and strengthening the church, that's specifically what the Bible says your spiritual gifts are for, to build up this body of Christ. But some folks say, well, you know what? I'm, I'm just too busy. Uh, I don't have time to use my spiritual gifts for the purpose for which God has given them to me. Do you understand what you're saying? Do you get it? Boy, no, but what one is responding? Two. Does anybody else wish to respond? Three. Okay, I feel like I'm an auctioneer. (laughs) Do I hear four? Anyway. What happens is we, we, we find ourselves refusing to do something that God has laid upon our hearts. Then what happens is someone else has to do that ministry for which they have not been gifted. And then the next thing I hear is this, Pastor, I can't keep doing this. I am really burning out. Let me tell you something. When God gifts you to carry out a ministry... He gives you the capability, the desire, and the stick-to-itiveness. And when people are gifted to do the ministries for which they volunteer and become involved, you never hear them say, I'm burning out. I might be tired. I might need to get a little rest, and I might need to refresh a little bit, but man, alive, I love what I'm doing. Do you remember when the, the, the Lord said to, to one person, he said, um, I, I want you to follow me. And uh, the, the person's response was, uh, Lord, I, I need to bury my father first. Well, the man was not speaking about a dad who was dead. He was speaking about a father that was still alive, and he said, I'm going to stay with dad till he passes away. And the Lord says something that if you don't understand the context of this, you think is pretty harsh. He says, let the dead bury the dead. You know what that means? Unsaved people can take care of those issues. You have a much greater work to do. Um, One person said, Lord, I'll follow you. And the Lord says, you know that the, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes of the field have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. If you choose to follow me, there may be great sacrifice that's involved. And we're not told that that person followed him. Another person was told to follow the Lord, and he said, but uh, first let me go back and uh, say farewell to all my friends. Uh, And the Lord says, anybody that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom. And then we have people in the 21st century who hear the Lord speak to them and say, I want you using the giftedness that I've given to you for the purpose of building up the body of Christ so that I might be glorified. And the person says... No. And sometimes that happens early on in their Christian life. And the older they get, the easier it is to say no. And to say no. And to say no. And guess what's happening? The heart's getting harder and harder and harder. Sometimes the prompting relates to confession of sin, repentance, dealing with the issues that we already know have displeased the Lord 
And there are times when it is much, much easier to ignore a sin than it is to actually deal with it. And so what believers will often do is, they'll they'll do something like this. They know that they're guilty of a sin. And that sin is something that works upon their heart, and so what they do is they say something like this. Well, you know what? I really need to confess this to the Lord. I need to take care of this sin. And so you go to the Lord and say, Father, what, what you told me about the gossiping is it's wrong, and I agree with you about that. Thank you for the forgiveness that you've given me. No. You need to make it right with a person that you've sinned against. Now it gets hard. What about that bitterness that's been growing inside? And you can confess whatever your feelings are towards someone and the way you have treated them because of those feelings. And you say, oh, the, the, the slate's clean. Everything's okay. No, it is not okay. You need to take care of it with the person against whom you have behaved inappropriately. But you know what happens? The more we sin, the easier it is to skip right on past it. Why? Because the Lord hardens the heart. You say, you mean God hardens the hearts? Yeah. If you start, he keeps the ball rolling. There are unsaved people who have been prompted by the Lord to open their hearts and trust Christ as their Savior. And they've resisted. And they've said, not today. Not this week, not this month, not this year. And the longer time goes, the easier it is to say, no, no, no. And they come to the point where they cross a line. And now they will not accept Christ. And it's too late. In some cases, death is the line. In other cases, the heart becomes so hard it will never again respond to the gospel of Christ. That's why the writer of Hebrews warns us, if you've heard the truth and you fall away, it's impossible to bring you back to a place of repentance. I guess what the Lord would want us to know about him is this. If you ignore, or if you resist, or if you reject his promptings, the heart begins to harden and before long it's too late now we come to verse 11 and the Lord says this I say then have they stumbled now you remember he's speaking about Israel at this point he's talking about them he's teaching us lessons through Israel I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, 
to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now we begin to learn something else about God. What does he do? God has the ability to bring out of apparent evil and loss that which is good. Here is the example of Israel. They have rejected the Messiah. They have rejected the prophets. They have turned their back on the truth of what God has revealed in His Word. And now Israel is set aside for a time. And the question comes back, has God... Has Israel fallen to the place of irreparableness? No, they have not. They have been set aside for a time so that God's attention can turn now to the Gentiles. You say, wait a minute, why does God need Israel to turn to the side or to be put off to the side and and turn to the Gentiles? Do you remember how Israel treated Gentiles? Do, Do you remember the attitude of the Jewish nation to people that were not Jews? They considered them dogs. They looked at the Gentile world and they wanted nothing to do with them. When God's intent was that Israel would become such an influence upon the world that the world would see in the monotheistic beliefs of the people of God, they would understand that there is one true God and His name is Jehovah. But now Israel has failed. And God says, okay, in that failure, I am turning now to the Gentiles, and I am going to bring a host of Gentiles into the kingdom. And Israel, though they have fallen, they have not fallen to a place where they cannot be restored. And he goes on and talks about the restoration that they will experience. Notice how it goes on in verse 12. Now, if they fall, or pardon me, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Guess what's going to happen when God returns his attention to the Israelites and says, now I'm bringing you back as my people. He says, it's going to be an even greater blessing to the world when Israel comes back. That is yet to be fulfilled. He continues, verse 13, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Do you know what Paul is saying at this point? Now that God has turned his attention to to the Gentiles, the reality of God's presence among the church, among those who are Gentile believers, will provoke Israel to jealousy. And the day will come when they will recognize that the believing Gentiles really had it right because God had drawn them to himself. They will now open their hearts as God draws them back to himself. And as we said before, all Israel will be saved, and as a result, the whole earth will be blessed. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? When God says, it looks like Bad, bad things are happening to Israel. 
But I want you to understand that as a result of what appears to be bad, they are being provoked to jealousy. That will turn them back to the Savior, and that which appears to be so bad actually becomes very, very good. Is that the way God works? Absolutely. And that should give every one of us hope. We should have a settled assurance that even when things appear to be bad, God is working it for good. Ask a guy by the name of Joseph. Brothers sell him into slavery. Goes to Egypt. He's taken by the head of the, the law enforcement in Egypt. The wife of that leader falsely accuses Joseph and he's cast into prison. Bad, bad, bad. Until God turns the whole story around and Joseph becomes the Savior of the people of Israel by being exalted to the second highest position in the land. And when Israel is going through famine, when Canaan is going through famine, the brothers who sold him into slavery come back and they seek food from him. And in the process, he reveals himself to them. And the people of Israel come down to Egypt. Their lives are spared. And God is going to continue to work. They will go into slavery, but God will deliver them from that. A guy by the name of Daniel understood that very clearly. He had seen what happened to the people of Israel. Now he does what a good follower of God will do. He prays three times in opposition to a law that has been established by the Medes and the Persians, and you do not change the law of the Medes and the Persians. And he bows before the Lord three times every day and the guys that really hate his guts come and they say to the king, Oh, king, live forever. Didn't you make a law that people could not ask of, of anyone else or anything else, anything that, that they wouldn't ask for you? I said that poorly, but you have the idea. And the king says, yeah, that's right. He says, well, da- da- uh, Daniel's been doing that. He gets cast into the lake of... Uh, the lake of he gets cast into the den of lions. And Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. Nice kitty. <laughs> Lay down. You just rest. Daniel, did your king spare, or did your God spare you? Boy, my head, where is it? I'm trying to think ahead of something that's even better than this. This evil turns out to be an opportunity for salvation. And Daniel is spared, and those that brought the charges against him are thrown into the den of lions. And the Bible, you know, people might say, well, maybe the lions weren't hungry. The Bible tells us that before their bodies hit the ground, the lions took them. They were hungry. They got their fill. But that's not the worst. The worst was at Calvary, where it appeared that sin had won.
And God the Son is hung on a cross. And he dies because of sin. Not his. Ours. And it looks like evil has won. It is finished. And he's gone. And three days later, he rises from the dead. That's why we're here today. By the way, sometimes we find ourselves in terrible situations because of our own behavior. Have you ever done something that's really wrong and you find yourself really getting spanked for it? (laughs) Thank you for your honesty. I find myself in that type of a situation far more often than than I like. But you know what? Here's the good news. Even when I have been responsible for the bad that has come into my life, God is still working it out for good. That's exactly what he does for his children. We should be people of hope. When when you read into this a little bit further, you understand that God's people should always be people who live extremely confidently. Why? Because all of these issues that come into our lives are designed for a good purpose. Sometimes the the hard issues of life, the things that appear evil, the things that appear bad, are really God's opportunity to do a work within us that we need done because we're not conforming to the image of Christ, which is our ultimate goal. And so God allows some of these things to come in order to humble us to bring us to our knees and to recognize the only way we can move forward is as God is the one who restores us from the humiliation of the things that we have done and even of things that we are not responsible for. We are brought into a place where now the conformity to the image of Christ becomes the issue. Even if we've done bad things ourselves, we're taken to the woodshed and we're spanked so that we might be more in tune with God's purpose and His will. There are things I would like to tell you we don't have time for. Oh my. Okay, one more thing to to go. When God allows bad things to happen in our lives, He will always make them good because of what He has planned. So as a believer, I can live in anticipation. How bad is it for you right now? Here's what I know. If you love the Lord and are called according to His purpose, He's going to work it for your good right here, right now. He's making you maybe more patient, making you kinder, maybe making you more aware of the things that you say, of the things that you do, of the places that you go, of the programs that you watch, of the websites that you are attracted to. And he's spanking and spanking, and you're saying, why are you doing this? And he says, because I want to make you better. I, I, I want... 
I want you to be what I want you to be. And then he says, do you understand that I've got everything worked out for you in the days coming when you are going to be with me in glory forever? What is heaven going to be like? Absolute perfection. How is this all going to work out? I've told you this before. I don't know, but here's what I know. There's no death there. Yes. There's no sickness. Yes. There's no sorrow. Yes. No pain. Yes. Absolute perfection. We've read the last chapter, and it's all good. If anybody should live lives that are confident, that are anticipating the future, it's those of us who know Christ as Savior. Because God is in control of everything that's going on around us and in us and through us. And the day is coming. He's bringing us into his presence to enjoy him forever. This is eternal life. That you might know him. The only true God. And his son the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand. Oh God, when we come to a portion of Scripture like this, it is greater than we have the ability to grasp because it's telling us about you. Lord, we will never fully know you because it's going to take eternity to just begin to scratch the surface. But Lord, the things that you've revealed to us now are for our benefit. And I pray that you would help us to take it seriously. Amen. God bless.